you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. LAist Studios. There's an old children's book called About Missiles and Men. It's from 1959. When I first saw it, I was about eight or nine years old, a little girl growing up in Southern California in the 1960s. The book starts, many men have worked many years to make today's missiles. Maybe one of them is your father or your uncle. Maybe one of these men lives next door to you. Maybe you will be one of these men someday. In fact, my father was one of those men. My father was a mechanical engineer. He and my mother married and put down roots in San Diego, near General Dynamics Convair, where he worked for more than a decade. Later, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory would bring him in as a contractor on the Mariner Mars 69 mission. Now, if there's any doubt my father was an engineer's engineer, here's how he described me on my birth announcement. Quote, Handicraft Limited reveals a few specifications on its new animated design model X2. Mary Grace. Wingspan, 16.8 inches. Length, 18 inches. It then mentions my gender as a, quote, design feature, which is ironic considering that being a woman in the aerospace industry at that time was not a design feature, at least not a good one. For a long time, aerospace was profoundly sexist. It remains sexist in many ways. In that children's book about missiles and men, there's no mention of women whatsoever. And yet women, both then and prior to then, were making major contributions to the field. They just didn't get any credit for it. When it comes to our very own Suicide Squad, there's a woman named Barbie Canwright who made significant contributions and rarely gets any due. I'm M.G. Lord. This is Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. 
Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. Barbara Canwright, who went by Barbie, was very smart. She went to school in Ohio, and when she was in high school, she loved math and chemistry. This is Emily Margolis. I'm the curator of American Women's History at the National Air and Space Museum and Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. Oftentimes, Barbie found that she was the only girl in her advanced STEM classes. In the late 1930s, she moved to Southern California with her new husband, Richard, because he was going to be pursuing graduate studies at Caltech in engineering. And at the same time, she herself started to pursue a bachelor's degree at Occidental College. Um, and she had a real affinity for math, and this is something that she explored. It's worthwhile to note that during her time as a student, she worked as a typist at Caltech, but Barbie would not have been allowed to study there. Ah, the 1930s. It's a period when women in the United States were increasingly entering the workplace, if only because so-called women's work was less affected by the stock market crash of 1929. At the same time, women were paid far less. They were prevented from taking jobs outside of things like teaching or nursing, and women of color were even more constrained. On top of that, women were prevented from even studying what were considered men's fields. So from Caltech's founding in 1891 until 1970, school officials prohibited women from enrolling in the undergraduate program. So as you might imagine, there were many women who were interested in science and math in the 1930s, just as there are many women interested in those subjects today. But they had different options when it came to education and to careers. I want to underline that. Women couldn't enroll at Caltech until 1970. That still shocks me. That's only 50 years ago. So in 1939, the Suicide Squad had an opportunity to expand their operations thanks to a grant from the National Academy of Sciences, and they invited Barbie and Richard Canwright to join them. At this point in 1939, the squad is creating jet-assisted takeoff engines, or JATOs, for the military, and they need expert mathematicians to gather data so they can figure out what's working or not. Barbie and Richard accepted the offer, and then they ended up working side-by-side side as computers. Computers is a term that many people think of today as it relates to machines, but back in the early late 19th and early 20th century, humans were computers. Now, this might be something you're familiar with, especially if you read Hidden Figures, the wonderful book by Margot Lee Shetterly, or saw the film. It deals with African-American female mathematicians working at NASA who were critical to the success of the American space program. Or maybe you're not familiar. Basically, the term computer, prior to us having things like Google Chromebooks and MacBook Pros, refers to somebody or a group of somebodies doing really difficult mathematical calculations. Somebodies who are often women, like Barbie Canwright. 
Canwright was an expert mathematician, and as one of the founding employees of JPL, Canwright also happened to be the only woman working in a technical role. So when the engineers were testing a new technology at an airfield, she was part of the team that went out to that airfield, first to observe what was happening qualitatively and record those observations in notebooks, and then also to record data and numbers and values that would she could then match up with her observations on the performance of the um, jet engines. And she used all of this information, sometimes with data that she recorded from photographs, to analyze efficacy and the performance of the experiments. So in the early days, Canwright and her husband, as computers, become integral parts of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. As a computer, Barbie Canwright's working with numbers that are going to shape aerospace technology for a long time to come. Canwright played an essential role in the jet-assisted takeoff experiments. Uh, she collected the data and performed many calculations that enabled the engineers to refine the technology. So it was really her math and those of the other computers that informed the next steps in the design. And for all that, and maybe you see this coming, Canwright's husband Richard gets a nice promotion to engineer. For Barbie, not so much. It was understood broadly at the time that for many women who worked as computers, that was the terminal job that they could get with their training and talents. We have to remember that engineering schools, including Caltech, were not offering undergraduate degrees to women. So the issue of promotability and mobility within the workplace was impacted not only by workplace practices and culture, but also educational opportunities. Instead, what happens is that it's time for our gifted mathematician to leave JPL and leave the workplace altogether. So when Canwright and her husband started a family, she was basically forced to resign from her position. And this is not something that was unique to Caltech or unique to academia. This was sort of a feature of the American workplace. In the 1930s and 40s and even earlier, workplace policies reflected societal fears that if mothers were working outside of the home, this would lead to the destruction of families, um, which we know from today, of course, is not true. But it's really important to remember that sort of this forced resignation um, and the, the ideas behind it was something that was in many ways unique to white women because women of color have always been working um, even after becoming mothers. While researching my book, AstroTurf, I watched some educational films, like films used in classrooms from the 1950s. One was called Why Study Science. It was from 1955. Your typical white American nuclear family, mom, dad, son, Jack, daughter, Betty, goes for a summer camping trip. One night, staring at the stars, Jack talks about studying science someday so he can travel to the moon. Whereas Betty won't need to, he says, because she, quote unquote, just wants to hook some guy. To which Betty responds, is there anything wrong with that? To be clear, her mother points out, young Betty may need some science, 
when it comes time to keeping house and cooking dinner. So women have always been making essential contributions to aerospace. When we think of some of the earliest aircraft manufacturers, they were hiring women to sew fabric for the wings of aircraft. When we think of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which preceded NASA, it hired women as human computers in support of research in aerodynamics. Women have been involved in creating the menus for astronauts to make sure they are sound. They have been in mission control. They have been working in aerospace, oftentimes behind the scenes. And so if you are looking at a particular moment in history and you're not seeing a woman, then you should probably maybe start asking new questions and thinking about who else was there, what kind of jobs were were necessary to support this work. I love that. And I hate it at the same time. Because when new questions aren't asked, when people don't see the need to ask new questions, that's how history gets erased. So the exclusionary policies and cultures in aerospace that existed in the time of uh, Barbara Canwright's career, I think, were very harmful to aerospace in general because there were many talented people with a lot of great ideas, energy, and enthusiasm that was not harnessed in support of new discoveries and inventions. I'll tell you what, though, the good thing about those women, those girls, for all the walls and setbacks, all the rubbish they encountered, they do not give up. They persevere. Women like Susan Finley, who also started as a computer and has since had one of NASA's most heralded careers. That's after the break. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. The journalists in the LAS newsroom work for you. I'm LAS higher education correspondent Adolfo Guzman Lopez. What the students are speaking about it is extremely valid. My reporting is about how students use higher education toward a better life. For the first time since being in this campus, it made me feel unsafe. Struggling through challenges like ethnicity, class, poverty, and family pressures. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. When I went off to find a job, I knew how to type, kind of, and that was it. So I looked for typing jobs in the paper. This is Susan Finley, a test engineer at JPL, and the woman who's worked there the longest. Like Barbie Canwright, Finley got her start as a computer. There was one at a company that was an engineering company, and I knew I liked engineering better than retail or things like that, or law. So I went and applied there for the job, and I didn't get it, but they asked me if I liked numbers. And I said, oh, yeah, I like numbers much better than letters. 
and then I went to work as one of two computers for 40 engineers. And um, I just loved it. I just took right to it. Then I got married and moved, and the drive was too far. And so I decided to look for another job. And my husband, my ex-husband, had graduated from Caltech, and he knew that they had a lab up in the Arroyo, and he said, why don't you go up there? And I did, and they also needed a computer at the time, and so they hired me right away. I was experienced. This was in 1958, when most women at JPL were working as computers. But during Finley's time at JPL, they also started using mechanical computers programmed by wires or pegboards. When I first started, we really were computers. And during that time, we got two different computers. They were little tiny computers, and one of them was programmed by using wires, and the other one was programmed by using pegboards. Those tiny computers the ancestors of your laptop and smartphone use similar processes to compute numbers as the ones Finley and her mechanical calculator used. So her next step, the next step for computer science more broadly, was learning programming languages. Now, a job in programming is practically the backbone of today's Silicon Valley, of computer technology in general. But at that time, it didn't have the prestige of engineering. I don't think many men were trying to be that. We had two men only that I can remember in the whole years, and that's all. I mean, they didn't apply. During her decades-long career at JPL, Finley did programming for missions to the Moon, Jupiter, Uranus, Saturn, and more. She says her favorite project was programming the Venus balloon on the Soviet spacecraft Vega. Well, my role was to help in the tracking of the Russian spacecraft. I had to change the software of the antennas so that it could accept the offsets that were needed because of the different frequency that the Russian spacecraft were, and I was actually in the control room and watching a screen that was attached to the software that was showing little beeps, it's just a flat line, and then all of a sudden spikes, and I jumped up and down. I was so excited. Finley's work can be grueling. It often requires long hours and late nights, which is a lot to ask of anybody. But it's even more to ask when you're expected to stay home with the kids. Let's just say Finley stood out from the other neighborhood moms. After the war, you know, everybody was saying, oh, yeah, now the women don't have to work anymore. The ones that don't have to, you know. Uh, there were sure a lot of women still working, poor women. And I was lucky that my husband let me go back to work because he had people say, oh, well, maybe soon you'll make enough money so she doesn't have to work. You know, that was 
very bad because I was working because I wanted to <laughs> and not to make the money for the house or anything like that. I mean, women were just swimming in a sea of sexism, to be honest. It, it was everywhere, and it was just the norm. This is Frances Poppy Northcutt, the first female engineer to work in NASA's mission control. Currently, she's a women's rights lawyer and activist in Houston, Texas. One example was pay discrimination, which was actually sort of institutionalized by law. They had, at that time, they had wage hour laws that restricted, if you were an hourly worker and you were female, you were not supposed to work for the same employer for more than, it was in Texas, it was nine hours a day, total of 54 hours a week. Now, there was no restriction about you working multiple jobs. Uh, this was supposedly protective legislation, but if you look at how it really worked, it wasn't really that protective. Uh, because what it did was it restricted the amount of overtime you could get if you were female. So, you know, if you were in a job that would periodically have really intense times, you know, where you had to work, lots of labor. You know, like being an engineer in mission control when the U.S. is racing to put a male person on the moon. A guy that had the same job as you would be able to earn a lot more overtime than you would if you were a woman. And also, I think that it was perhaps the most invidious part of it was not directly the pay as much as it was the opportunity for promotion. Put yourself in the role of, a, of an employer, for example, and you had a situation where sometimes you would have high need for workers, okay? Who are you going to want to hire? So these were the rules, which were total hogwash. At the same time, like Northcutt said, let's try a thought exercise. Put yourself in an employer's shoes. Say you've got two people up for promotion. Do you promote the one who walks off the job each day to go stick a pot roast in the oven? Or do you promote the person who stays as long as is necessary? No disrespect to the pot roast makers of the world, but what Northcutt knew, probably deep down in her bones, is that to get ahead, to get anywhere, sometimes you have to break the rules. I think a big part of the reason why I was promoted really had to do with the fact that I did not follow those rules, uh, because following those rules really made you not part of the team if the rest of the team was guys. So... Um, if they were working Saturdays or Sundays, I was working Saturdays or Sundays. If they didn't leave at 6, I didn't leave at 6. And uh, I knew I wasn't, I couldn't get paid for it. But I also knew that the only way I was going to be really integrated as part of the team was to behave like the rest of the team. In the run-up to Apollo 8 in particular, it seemed to me like I, I just worked all the time. I, practically around the clock. I mean, it was work, sleep, work, sleep, work, sleep. That was about it. Because we uh, had to do all of this testing. Women aerospace engineers still face pay gaps and other forms of discrimination, but they have made enormous strides, thanks in many ways to women who came before them. In fact, a bunch of women are killing it in aerospace at the moment. 
The Artemis, for example, the director in, in launch control is a woman. Artemis One, the recent uncrewed mission to orbit the moon. The head of SpaceX is a woman in terms of day-to-day stuff at SpaceX. Quite a number of the uncrewed missions that are conducted to Mars and to other, you know, other places out of JPL, they've had flight controllers and flight directors that are women. A friend of mine uh, that works at JPL, she's the top dog, really, in terms of uh, planetary exploration. So uh, there's been vast improvements. And yet, as Northcutt points out, there's still need for change. There's still discrimination, okay? The expectations are still that women don't go into those fields. And so, you know, we always have the need to improve that. The area of computer science has been sort of disappointing, the progress there for women. Actually, I think that there were more women in computer science back in my era than there are now. It's gone down instead of up. But in physics and chemistry and engineering, the numbers have gone up. They're still way lower than they should be, but they've gone up. Maybe you've noticed something about this podcast so far, that most of the voices telling the story of the Suicide Squad are men. Well, we could use more female representation among aerospace historians, too. In fact, as Smithsonian curator Emily Margolis points out, We owe much of our knowledge of Barbie Canwright to historian and author Natalia Holt. And so it's really thanks to the research of people like Natalia Holt who go into the archives, conduct interviews, and ask different questions to find out who was there and what they did. And it's really thanks to her um, that we can understand what Barbie Canwright contributed to aerospace history. Something that's so exciting about Canwright is that she was one of the first... Uh, and earliest contributors to the JPL and to the many discoveries that they made at that workplace in the early years. And if it wasn't really for the work of historians and scholars to remember and tell her story, we wouldn't know that she had this important role in history. Unfortunately, there's another sadder reason we don't know much about Barbie Canwright's time at JPL. She never talked about it. Maybe it's because at the same time that she and her husband were working there, they were befriended by Jack Parsons. He invited them to the Agape Lodge, where sexual coercion and misogyny seemed to be the norm. We don't know exactly what happened to the Canwrights at the Agape Lodge, but years later, Barbie had a nervous breakdown and was never the same again. Next time on Blood, Sweat, and Rockets... The Dark Side of Jack Parsons. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is hosted by me, M.G. Lord. The show is a production of Alea Studios in collaboration with Western Sound. Shana Naomi Crockmall is our vice president of podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the executive producer for Alea Studios. Ben Adair is the executive producer for Western Sound. Dan Leone is the showrunner. Producers are Savannah Wright, Tyler Hill, Caitlin Parker, and Becky Nicolaitis. 
The show is written by Rachel Knowles, Rosecrans Baldwin, and me, M.G. Lord. It was edited by Savannah Wright. Sound design by Tyler Hill. Mixing and mastering by Tom McLean. Research and consulting by History Studio. Our website at Alaus.com is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Alaus Studios. The marketing team of Alaus Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Alaus Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is a production of Elias Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.